Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Most people want to leave this earth being known for something. We want to be at least a little memorable to some so that our time on this plane won't be forgotten so quickly. It's that whole sense of self, my soul has self-esteem issues thing that we're all born with. Maybe you want to be known for being kind to animals. Maybe you're good at math and you want people to remember your gift for solving difficult differential equations. Or maybe you want to be known as the only man to have ever eaten an airplane. You heard me. Michel Lotito is also known as Monsieur Mange Tout, which translates as Mr. Eat Everything. He's the world record holder of the largest meal ever eaten. In this case, it's a Cessna 150. This is an airplane. It has a wingspan of just over 33 feet and weighs about 1,100 pounds. It can carry two people at a maximum altitude of 14,000 feet for just over 400 miles. And this dude ate one. Apparently, he has a stomach lining that's twice as thick as it should be, which allows him to digest things like nuts and bolts and sheet metal and chain. I wonder what kind of wine goes with the prop assembly. Anyway, Michel Lotito will be forever known as the guy who ate an airplane. A meal that size is a world record. Which is another thing that got me thinking. What are some of the superlatives and some of the weirdness that comes from the world of new rock and alternative music when it comes to stuff like this? So I started looking, and I found out a lot. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Book of World Records, Part 2. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. It's a normal challenge to which I'm not exempt. It goes a normal That's a dude named Kid Carpet from 2008. It's an album entitled Casio Best. It's Failed World Record Attempt. He wrote that one as an ode to the Beijing Olympics. Great YouTube video for it, too. Kid Carpet's real name is Ed Patrick, and he believes that cheap keyboards and Fisher-Price guitars are the way to go. He once used a Furby for backing vocals. Remember those annoying things from a couple of Christmases ago? But that Furby was stolen at a gig, so backup vocals are, are, are gone. Welcome again, I'm Ellen Cross, and this is part two of a program I call The Ongoing History of New Music Book of World Records. For the first time anywhere, I think, all the glorious and dubious world records from new rock and alternative music have been collected in one place. On the last show, we covered things like the longest song, the longest album title, the shortest video, stuff like that. Let's warm up with this item. Which alt-rock, new rock performer has been in the business longer than anyone else? Iggy Pop? A good guess. He started making music in 1965. David Bowie? Another good guess. First record to feature him was a single called Liza Jane. It was released on June 5th of 1964. But I can name one guy who's still touring and still making records, even though he broke into the business in, wait for it, 1958. That's the year that Lou Reed, 
leader of the Velvet Underground, perhaps the first true alternative band, was part of a doo-wop group called The Shades. Lou was just 14 years old at the time. They were part of a series of high school bands in which Lou played while he was growing up on Long Island. What made The Shades different was the fact that they recorded a single in 1958. This was Lou's first ever recorded moments. Now, listening to this, you would never guess that he would later influence Bowie and Iggy and R.E.M. and The Killers and so many of the other movers and shakers of the alt-rock scene in the decades ahead. So check this out. 14-year-old Lou Reed from 1958 as part of The Shades. The song is called So Blue. Why did I have to go and stop your love? Lou Reed from 1958, and as far as I can tell, he is the longest surviving alt-rock, new rock musician in the world. He's been making records for 50-plus years. Amazing. Now, this is still his best-known song. It's from 1972 and was produced by David Bowie. The saxophone part was played by the guy who taught Bowie how to play the sax when he was about 14. The bass parts are by a guy named Herbie Flowers. He was paid 30 bucks for his troubles. A hustle here and a hustle there. New York City is the place where they said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, Joe, take a walk on the wild side. Lou Reed and Walk on the Wild Side. We put him as the longest-serving member of the alt-rock community, having continuously recorded and toured since 1958. We'll come back to him later. Let's try something else. And this next world record might cause some disputes. Heck, you know, even I disputed it until I saw the video. Now, I play drums, and I have this monstrously huge drum kit in my basement. I used to work in a drum store, so I know big. Or, or maybe not. According to the Guinness Book of World Records... Which drummer has performed with the biggest drum sets? Should be a no-brainer, right? You're probably going to say Neil Peart of Rush. No, that's wrong. The answer is Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. In a special 2006 drum clinic performance for Pearl Drums, the manufacturer he endorses, Chad played a stupidly large drum kit that consisted of 300 and eight pieces. He did this as a favor to a friend who owned a music store. Now, obviously, he doesn't tour with this kit. That would be dumb. This was just a one-off performance in a store. But it was pretty impressive to see and hear. The Red Hot Chili Peppers with Give It Away performed live in Hyde Park in London with Chad Smith on drums, of course. By the way, that Hyde Park concert involves a record of its own. It happened in the summer of 2004, and apparently 245,000 people took in those gigs over three nights. The gross was $17 million, and that's some kind of a record. More rock world records coming up, including the world's largest private record collection. And I'm going to play you, I'm going to actually play you something so you can hear it, a track from the rarest and most expensive alt-rock collectible record ever. Trust me, this is cool. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Ongoing History Book of World Records version one. It's the biggest, the smallest, the longest, the shortest, the fastest, and the slowest, and all that sort of stuff. Let's look at biggest again for a second. How big 
is your personal music collection. And you can measure it any way you want. CDs, MP3s, vinyl, I don't care. I've got about, mm, I don't know, somewhere between 12,000 and 15,000 physical pieces of music. CDs, LPs, and 45s. Some of that has been ripped to my computer. iTunes says that I have just under 15,000 tracks ripped to my hard drive, but most of those are just duplicates of what I already have on CD. Now, I have some friends who have even bigger music collections, but I've never heard of anything bigger than what I'm going to tell you about now. Paul Mawinney lives in Pittsburgh, but 50 years ago, he started a personal record collection with a 45 from a singer named Frankie Lane. As of early 2008, that collection had grown from one seven-inch single piece of vinyl to more than three million records and 300,000 compact discs. This collection covers every type of music imaginable. There's rock, country, R&B, comedy, Broadway show tunes, soundtracks, children's records, bluegrass, folk, new age, jazz, and the music is on LP and EP and 78 and 45. There are cassettes and eight tracks, CD singles and full albums, three million records, 300,000 CDs. And as you might guess, they take up a lot of room. Years ago, when the collection hit 160,000, his wife made him move everything out of the house. So he found a 16,000 square foot climate controlled warehouse. I've seen the pictures and they're amazing. But after a number of years, it became too much for Paul. Age, health concerns because of diabetes, and the sheer cost of maintaining this collection became too much for him. So he did what every record collector does these days. He put the whole thing up for sale on eBay. Now, the minimum reserve bid was $3 million, which was pretty good because if you were to buy the equivalent number of songs on iTunes, that's about 6 million songs, by the way, it would cost you just over $5.9 million. Estimates are that Paul's collection, with all its rarities, is worth closer to $50 million. This is what the appraisers have said. So you could have a $50 million record collection for $3 million. Unfortunately, though, that eBay auction fell through. The last time I checked, no one had bought it. And let me tell you something. If I had an extra $3 million and a place to put those records, I'd buy it all in a second. So Paul Mawinney, reluctant owner, still, of the world's largest private record collection... That's a guy from Brooklyn named Kevin Devine with a track called Guys with Record Collections. I wonder if anyone has written about Paul Mawinney and his collection. Now, speaking of record collections, what would be the most valuable thing that anyone could have in theirs? Now, since we're speaking of new rock and the alternative world, we're not talking about Beatles and Bob Dylan records. There are some collectibles from those guys that are worth way more than what we're about to talk about, so we're not concerned. The perennial holder of the high watermark in alt-rock has been, up until recently, the Sex Pistols' God Save the Queen 7-inch single. And not just any 7-inch single. It has to be the one released on A&M Records in 1977. See, the Pistols had a really hard time keeping a record deal. They were first signed to EMI, but they were booted off. Then they were signed to A&M for all of five days, but then a revolt by other artists on the label forced management to give them the HIFO again. But in that five days... A&M had pressed up something like 25,000 copies of God Save the Queen. When the pistols were fired, those singles were ordered destroyed. And they were. Most of them. Several dozen copies were, uh, I guess, liberated from the pressing plant. 
At least nine were given to A&M executives as presents. Some made their way to members of the band. I know the guitarist Steve Jones was known to sell a copy or two if he needed cash. And the rest somehow just went into the wild. Now, occasionally, some of these singles turn up for auction. The last price I heard was $24,000. It'll probably go higher, but whatever the inflation rate on collectibles, God Save the Queen on A&M will keep its position. But it is not the most expensive alt-rock collectible anymore. Back in September of 2002, a guy from Montreal named Warren Hill was looking through a box of records at a street sale in the Chelsea section of New York City. And among the things he pulled out of a box was something labeled Velvet Underground 42566 Attention N. Dolph. It was pressed on cheap, brittle aluminum, which was weird. So Warren bought the record along with two others for 75 cents. He showed it to his friend who ran a record store. And they soon realized that Warren had found a one-of-a-kind, undiscovered acetate pressing of some of the sessions that would eventually make it onto the Velvet Underground's debut album. These were known as the Scepter Studios sessions. Warren put it up on eBay and saw the bidding hit $155,401. But then the winning bidder refused to honor anything, and it was withdrawn. Warren tried again, and this time things worked out. It sold to a buyer for $25,200 in December 2006, making it, for the time being, the world's most valuable collectible alt-rock record. Now, a brittle aluminum acetate such as this cannot be played more than two dozen times because it'll just wear out and be destroyed. However, someone was daring enough and had the foresight to rip it to MP3 so we could all hear it. This is crackly. It's lo-fi, but this is honest-to-God history. It's a test pressing from the band considered to be the first alt-rock group ever. It's Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground with a different take of the song, Heroin. Now that's cool. That's what a $25,000 Velvet Underground collectible sounds like. It's an alternate take, a formerly lost and unknown take of Heroin, one of the key songs in the first Velvet Underground album from 1966. Okay, now let's go to the other extreme. If someone was willing to pay $25,000 for an old Velvet Underground album, how much would someone pay for a brand new single from a brand new unknown artist. This is where we get to the Thurston Revival. This is the professional name of Dan O'Donnell, a Vancouver-based performer who released 100 vinyl copies of a song called Somewhere There's an Angel in 2007. The retail price of this single was $200. By now, you're probably thinking this guy is nuts. I mean, 200 bucks for a single from a guy that nobody knows? Well, let me explain. Dan looks at this as an art project, a statement on the commodification of music and how this kind of art has been devalued in the minds of the public. But as you might guess, there's more to this. Ten acclaimed British artists each designed ten sleeves for this record. So this adds to the art project aspect of the whole thing. And everything has been exhibited in galleries too. But would you like to hear it? Dan says that this song was inspired by the classic Arthur Miller play, The Crucible, and it took him two years to write. So here we are. It's Dan O'Donnell 
working under the name The Thurston Revival with Somewhere There's an Angel. And you'll be kept safe and secure out of reach Love the weather in touch of diseases The almighty Jesus could cure with one Dan O'Donnell, otherwise known as The Thurston Revival, with a song called Somewhere There's an Angel. He put 100 copies on sale for $200 each. And as far as anyone can tell, this is the highest price ever put on a debut single. I have one more world record for you before we're done. And before we go any further, I have to ask this. How fast can you dance? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, okay, we'll see. Hang on. This is version 1.0 of the ongoing history book of world records. We're looking at some of the superlatives from the new rock and alternative rock scenes. A few minutes ago, I asked, how fast can you dance? If you're into DJ culture, you'll know what BPM means. It means beats per minute. It's a measurement of tempo. It helps DJs with their music selection for the dance floor. It's also handy for other things. For example, I know that if I want to go for a fast jog with my stride, I need something that's about 170 beats per minute. Rock and hip-hop run in a range of 80 to 100 BPM. House music is somewhere between 120 and 135. Then we get to certain types of techno with names like Gabber and Speedcore. And then you're talking about 200 beats per minute or more, which is really fast. But to my knowledge, nothing is faster than what Moby did. Yes, that Moby. Mellow, tea-drinking, vegetarian Moby. In 1992, he released a single called I Feel It. On the B-side was a track called Thousand. Why? Let me play it for you. Moby and Thousand, a song that reaches 1,000 beats per minute. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the fastest dance song ever, although that is being disputed. You see, when a song reaches 1,000 BPM, it's known as extratone. And since 1992, technology has allowed for composers to create songs with BPM counts of upwards of 15,000. However, none of those songs have ever been a hit single. Moby's 1,000 reached number 38 on the British charts. So we'll go with the bald vegan from New York, as the guy with the fastest dance record ever. I hope you got something out of our look at alt-rock world records. We could actually go on and on here. I have have lots more, but we'll save them for version 2.0. I'll do my best. Oh, here's a new one now. Uh, Who is the world's fastest rapper? That's from Jane in Calgary. Okay, last check, it was Rebel XD, who rapped 852 syllables in 42 seconds at a competition in Chicago on July the 27th of 2007. Good, that, that's, that's fine. That's all. F- oh, uh, Brian in Toronto wants to know about the largest group rendition of Smoke on the Water. Okay, uh, 2006, Kansas City, Missouri, 1,721 people riffing at the same time. However, on October 26, 2007, in the town of Shillong, in the state of Meghalaya in India, 1,730 people played Bob Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door in unison. No, it's, it's not. We're, we're done. Ne- next. Oh, God. Stop it! I'm out of here. Research help from Natalia Ribeiro. Technical production by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. 
You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.